So thank you for joining me on this episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. Uh, once again, I had a great opportunity to speak to a, a, a somebody, at least in, in my musical interests, to be very, very important. Uh, he and his bandmates uh, created some of the, I think, the most epic uh, recordings of that era, maybe between the, the early 90s to the mid-90s. They were very, very active. And um, today's guest is Paul Stewart of Blue Boy. And we really focused on their 1994 album, Unisex, which I think is a tour de force. I think it has so many different styles. The production is top-notch. The artwork, incredible. And it really, to me, just was really encapsulated what they did with the band. Um, So we really spent a long time talking about that in this episode. You're also going to hear a little bit about how the band met, how they got started, about the recording process, influences. Uh, It's really, really full here. But... I believe the star of the show today's for today's episode, at least, is uh, where Paul played some excerpts from some of the songs from uh, Unisex, which are really quite stellar. And um, if you know the songs, I think they mean a ton more. And if you don't, uh, I'm almost I'm guessing that you'll be uh, you'll be wanting to go out and check the album out. So without further delay, let's go ahead and listen to my conversation with Paul Stewart the guitarist and instrumentalist of Blue Boy, where we discuss their 1994 album, Unisex. You said love can break a boy's heart I said there's no such thing No such thing Scrimping say Freaking out on Katie's 
All right, so welcome to this episode of the Vinyl Detroit podcast. We just heard Amipramine from Blue Boy uh, from their album Unisex, came out in 1994 on Sarah, uh, reissued a couple years ago, I believe, on a, um, a Colorful Storm, I believe, who reissued it. I think I have it here somewhere. Uh, and I'm super excited today to welcome Blue Boy guitarist, songwriter, uh, one of the original members of the band, Paul Stewart. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining me, Paul. I'm super excited to talk about the album and talk about the band and just reminisce a bit. Mm, okay. It's um, yeah, it's frightening to think how long ago all this was, so I'll do my best. But <laughs> I've, got, I've got a little box full of um, sort of set lists and mementos, and we wrote out a lot of the music, actually. So I still have the original sheet music and some of Keith's lyrics scribbled down on bits of paper and... Uh, uh, it's funny sometimes to read what the original lyrics were and how they changed and what they ended up being like. But uh, I'll, I'll do my best to recall what I can. He was, I mean, he was such a lyricist. And, and as you know, we're going to get into Keith a little bit later. And uh, just listening to the album over and over again, kind of preparing for this and obviously being a fan of the album since it came out. Uh, I, I could see that. I mean, I could see him at you know the last moment scribbling this and crossing out that and hmm. just trying to get it just right. And, and I feel like like he did. So, uh, so yeah, I wanted to get started. Really, you know, not not at the very beginning, but pretty close to the beginning. Uh, you know, I, I've come to know the band uh, as a uh, as a as a five or six piece once Harvey joined. Uh, but prior to that, uh, there was Feverfew, which. Uh, through my research, I did come across that that video again on Sky Search uh, that 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 showed in the UK in 1989. Mm. Uh, as as you, I mean, obviously, Blue Boy started out with basically yourself and Keith on the Clear single, uh, and then it expanded to a five piece, and then later, the way I recall, was a six piece with Harvey. Uh, mm. w- was there any early intention to expand the band? And, and if, if there was, what would have been the decision that would have went into that? Well, we, we did, we did, we disbanded Feverfew. That kind of was our, our sort of local Reading band. Um, we did a lot of gigs. Um, and then Keith and I kind of splintered off from that. We were starting to write more sort of melancholic stuff, really. Feverfew was an upbeat sort of indie pop band. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always dreamed of having, you know, either a violin or a cello or a flute or something in the music because we felt that fitted the way we were going in our sort of writing process. And we had about four or five songs that we'd written together. And we recorded, I think, three of them in a friend's, a friend had a shed in the bottom of his garden and he had a four <laughs> track. Yeah. In the days of, this is, this is pre-digital age here. Sure. And, uh, this, is, this is all analog and tapes and envelopes and <laughs> and um we recorded i think at one was song was called temple which uh, uh i i've just put up on youtube a little while ago i found that we found a demo copy of that um the other two songs were clearer and allison wow and i think yeah keith sent a cassette off to a few record labels one of which was sarah and uh, they wrote back and said, we'd like to do Clear as a single, but pay for a proper studio, which was amazing. So the two of us went in there. Um, but we also we also dragged in Lloyd to add some drums and percussion. Mm-hmm. And uh, didn't really have ambitions at that point. Um, it was Sarah number 55. So it's sort of midway through their 
exactly midway through their catalogue. So we, we were we were joining, as you say, kind of at their peak. Um, it got really, really good response. And, uh, you know, they, they asked us about producing some more music. So we figured we ought to sort of pull a band together, really, and um, start writing in this new style, in this new way, but with, with other people. So uh, I found a bass player who I was sharing a house with at the time, and Lloyd played drums. And we had about five, six, seven songs put together, did a couple of gigs, and it started to grow from there. And then Gemma answered an ad that we put out locally, which was which was a, a real dream come true because uh, initially we wanted a, a female vocalist because Keith's, Keith's scene works really well with female vocalists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, we sort of met up with her and you know, she was a great fit for the band and really lovely, great taste in music. And then she said, oh, by the way, I play piano and cello if ever you want that. So that was, you're in kind of oh, thing. Oh, you're in. I, I mean, totally a cellist? In. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that was amazing. So the writing really started to go off. And that's, so when you hear um, the first LP, If Wishes Were Horses, that was, that's chiefly, you know, um, myself and Gemma and Mark coming up with the music and uh and lloyd on drums keith singing and was it, um yeah was it was it was it challenging making that transition from yourself and keith to a a five four or five piece at that point not so much because we we had we had very strong ideas and we would we would sort of knock them together and imagine them as a bigger as a bigger song or wherever it was going and then and then sort of present it to the band and say, so, you know, we think it, it should be this fast. We think this should be the chorus, everything else. And, and people just add their own sort of contributions. It worked really well. For, I've always worked like that. It doesn't work for me sitting in a room with a blank piece of paper with a whole bunch of people. That's it's too, it's too chaotic. For me, the creative process starts with the guitar and imagining the, the style of a song or a piece. And whether it would be instrumental or whether it would be loud or it'd be fast, where the vocals would be. And then working with, I worked with Keith on, on where the singing should be, the melody and the feel, and then taking it to the band. That just, that's just, the, that doesn't work for everybody, but that's just the way I, I, I've always worked and it worked well for us. Yeah, I understand that. I, you know, I, I've, I've played in, in a band and, and I've played music and there is a, there's a blue boy connection to our band, which we can discuss a little bit later when we talk about Keith, but I, I completely understand what you're saying about the chaos and, and it's, it's hard to uh, compose in that environment. I mean, it's great to rehearse and to add parts, but to compose from scratch, at least for myself as well, was, was challenging. And so I, I do mm. understand that, that challenge yeah. for sure. Yeah. So you had mentioned, you know, that, that obviously anybody listening to this podcast will know that that blue boy uh, got its start on Sarah. Um, I've, I'm a huge fan. I've I've got every release here uh, in the Vinyl Detroit vault, which is known as my basement of my house, and uh, and they get they get quite frequent listening here. Uh, you had mentioned you know early on that, and I would agree completely that you know when Clearer came out, that was uh, really when when the label was was peaking. It had quite a bit of momentum at that point, so that was really an important time. Uh, how how familiar was the band with Sarah? And then uh, you had mentioned that you know you had sent out some tapes to some other labels. Um, 
how was that initial connection with, with uh, Matt and Claire and, and, and really kind of how did that come about to release that? Mm. Uh, we, we knew the label very, very well because um, the, the, the music climate, I guess you could say at that time was very, it's quite heavy and grungy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so labels like Sarah really stuck out because they were still releasing, you know, seven inch singles with three or four songs on um with with proper sleeves and um felt there was a real sort of honesty about the music and the bands on there um we'd been to see quite a few bands went to see the orchids um saw brighter a couple of times and we of course knew christine christine mm-hmm. um very well um and uh, harvey's harvey's band another sunny day knew him well so it seemed like, it seemed like a good fit for us. Um, so yeah, we we that was definitely one on our list that we approached, and and you know we were we were so thrilled when they they sort of accepted us. Um, Matt and Claire are two of the, the sort of warmest non business minded people I've ever met. I think um, the way they run their ran their label was was absolutely astonishing. I mean, they used to do pretty much everything themselves we would sometimes go and visit them when we would be stuffing envelopes licking stamps and they continued that i think right to the end um they're very humble they gave us huge amounts of freedom they didn't even turn up at the studio to record they just they, they say oh we'll come at the end listen to it you know they really they're, they're very very open with what they wanted and you said you would like you to do this if that works for you and we'd like you to do a tour next year we can arrange it so it was it was great i mean it's the only it's it was the first time we've been signed to a label so to us that was kind of normal but i've since learned that's not always the case <laughs> <laughs> probably uh the exception yeah so so yeah so we were very lucky yeah yeah no doubt i mean i i just you know knowing knowing the label knowing the catalog and, and really when when blue boy first emerged it was i mean it was just the right i think it was the right place at the right time i mean i think that clear if we're kind of getting off topic a little bit would be one of those you know probably top five songs that if someone said hey you know tell me more about sarah what it's about uh that would that single would be one of those singles it's just it was it was to me i mean a landmark type of release in the in the arc of the label Thank uh, you. for sure no they were they're they're great people they were uh claire was was more than I, I I still can't even believe this, but I did speak to Claire early on in this podcast and I really only had a couple episodes out and I reached out to Matt and he was going to do it, but you know, he at the last minute said, Hey, Claire will do it. And I couldn't believe it. And so I'm talking to Claire in my kitchen and I, it was like a surreal moment it, because she, mm. you're right. She is so normal and so down to earth and just yeah. so matter of fact that I, I couldn't believe that I was having that conversation with her and really hearing yeah. about all of these great, artists and releases really from the source and that was that was just really special yeah i mean i've I've heard stories of them giving people lifts back in their car you know to wherever they were going after gigs and you know (laughs) unheard of unheard of well that's great you know uh you know matt and claire have meant a, a lot to me and the music that they've done over the years have been very very important uh so one special thing that that uh Paul and I have have secretly planned behind the scenes for this episode, and which is something I've not done yet. And 
Um, I, I'm beyond beyond excited to do this. Paul's going to play uh, some short excerpts from some of the tracks from Unisex. Uh, you're only going to obviously hear them here. They're going to be done live. And um, Paul and I kind of worked through the the short set list of, of tracks that uh, you know would translate well here. So we're going to go ahead and give uh, just a, a stellar track from Unisex a, a listen. Uh, Paul's going to give us a, a short sample of that, and this is Fleetway. fantastic Paul to hear that and and I, I, I'm kind of without words right now I, I actually did sit here with my eyes closed listening to it I couldn't believe that I was listening to that it's so intricate without the other parts I guess I really hadn't hadn't thought of it that way yeah yeah um it's a combination of picking and strumming I guess I always wanted to um without getting too technical I always wanted to use sort of interesting chords and when a chord is interesting, sometimes it's nice to individually pick the strings so you hear the different quality rather than just a bashing it out, strumming right. it with a spectrum. And that's uh, one of those examples, I guess. No, that was that was just fantastic, which, which actually leads me to my next question. And uh, this came from, this question actually came from a, a, a listener that, that I know who I've been corresponding with about uh, this interview. And I, and I did ask him who's, I mean, it just, at least as as big of a fan of Blue Boy as I am, probably more. And you know, he he had he wanted to know, and I actually would like to know too, that you know the use of the classical guitar in 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 this style of music is I would say pretty rare. It was it was rare definitely back when you were doing it, and I think it's still rare. Um, you know, your skills are just, in my opinion, far beyond just the average player, and you can hear that in that last clip. Uh, he he wanted to know, you know, did you take lessons in classical guitar or jazz style early on? Because that's not that's not a beginner playing there at all. Yeah. <laughs> so he was he was wondering like what, if there was any training in your past. Uh, yeah, so I I started having classical lessons when I was fifteen, and um, I was I was very I was very influenced by Dianga Reinhardt and uh you know gypsy jazz but also bands like everything but the girl first lp uh pale fountains fantastic something all these other bands that used used acoustic and classical guitars within within the context of of the of the songs that appealed to me very much i love the purity of the sound of the strings 
Um, later on, uh, yeah, I did have, I had a very good mentor, jazz guitar mentor, and I played in a, in, um, a, a sort of jazz instrumental band. That was very hard work, but I, I did, a, I cut my teeth very much in there and um, learned so much from him. His name was Rob, Rob Cox. And um, yeah, we played live a lot. And um, sometimes he turned to me and say, oh, tonight we're going to do any e flat. So your brain has to suddenly go, ah, so <laughs> you have to really know your, your chords. Um, so I put all that into sort of a melting pot and the sorts of things I was listening to at the time. And, and I think that's where I sort of, I used the staccato style, the picking um, sort of throughout really. Um, yeah, that's where that comes from. I think. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think. I think. Sorry, I think everyone is an influence of their their record collection and the people that they listen to or admire and the music they like. I think it's it's so that's probably evident in 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 what I do. Yeah, I mean, really, that that classical guitar style and and just the instrument itself. As I was sitting here listening to your answer, I mean, I, I think it's it's really one of the calling cards for Blue Boy, probably. Uh, you know, one of the cornerstones of of the sound. I mean, just because it's something that really nobody else was doing, uh, and very few have have done it. You know, mm. since so, uh, it really does it really does set the sound apart. I mean, if if you hear, you know, if wishes were horses or any of the singles or anything like that, and you hear that class, you really you really kind of wonder what you're listening to because it just has a a higher level of sophistication that it brings. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, uh, Louis Louis Philippe on the L label. I mean, his appointment with Venus LP is is, sure. uh, is t- timeless. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, no doubt. There's there's definitely some Louis Philippe here in in the Vinyl Detroit collection. Ah, great. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, so speaking of of that, you know, you had mentioned some of those uh, you know early influences on your guitar playing. I guess I'd like to kind of maybe switch gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, and talk about influences on the sound of the band, and particularly mm-hmm. during that unisex era when that was being composed and 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 rehearsed and recorded. Uh, you know, obviously there was you know the first album, everything but the girl. There was some Louis Philippe in there and, and things like that. Was there any other influences that may have have affected or touched the band that that you felt really worked its way into this album? Um. Like the the album's a bit of a mix. You've got some fairly heavy stuff like Imipramine mm-hmm. and um, some more of the, the sort of indie pop stuff like Cosmopolitan is on there. And then you've got the the completely stripped bare stuff like So Catch Him and um, Always There, he- heavily using the cello and uh, vocals, the sort of vocal harmonies. Those were the sort of the, the sort of, the main kind of elements that make those songs work, I think. Um, and then you've got that that whole kind of acoustic army kind of sound, like the joy of living. I just wanted it really lush and vibrant, and all the instruments to sort of be doing, you know, just just really coming out of their shells and just it all working and gelling together. Um, so, in answer to your question, I think <laughs> <laughs> ten minutes ago. <laughs> I think, I think uh, some some of the songs kind of stand up on their own, and there's possibly sort of like a blue boy sound coming through. 
So in terms of sort of the other influences, I, I, I wouldn't say there was anything definite at the time, but it, of course, don't, don't forget, you've got five or six people, they're all bringing their own interpretation into their playing. Sure. Um, I know that, um, you know, Keith had a very sort of diverse taste in music. Uh, we were also listening to things like uh, a lot of 4AD and Creation and Factory, but also I, I was I was listening to things like Shelley and Orphan on Rough Trade, you know, very orchestral. Sure. Um, so we, we would do things like doubling up the cello, so you'd record a low part and then a high part. And Gemma used her sister, I think, for violin and viola, so there'll be sort of three or four parts. So. Luckily in the studio, you can overdub that. So when you got the beginning of uh, the opening bars of um, uh, So Catch Him, yeah, it's like a, a like a string quartet, but it's it's just the two of them. I, I didn't I didn't realize that, and and really it it hits you. It just hits you so hard when you first hear it because you know you're you're expecting I I, I don't know you're expecting maybe a uh, more of a straightforward sound, and then all of a sudden you get hit with this the string quartet, which then obviously flows into the first track. And well, I mean, it's all the first track, but the way it the way it was put together, and um, it, again, I think it. I think you, you said it. I mean, it's really five or later on six people who who bring all those influences and their parts to really what you and Keith originally you know dream up as far as the song structure mm. and the pace and things like that so that that's that's great we, we deliberately put that on the album first we for that very reason we kind of wanted to say this is how we sound we're here kind oh, of thing for sure there's because no doubt maybe with the first album and single or two there's probably an expectation and we wanted to conform to that expectation a little bit but then by the second album we thought we we just need to develop our own sound and we need to hear what we sound like and this is what it is so i think unisex is probably the, the purest truest sort of blue boy record oh for sure so so last night i was i was wrapping up another interview and uh my daughter and her friend were here and you know i was just i, I get really excited after it's over and i just think about you know all the possibilities and the things i learned and i was sharing with them i said here's who i'm talking to tomorrow and i had the record out i said this is something you need to add to your playlist right now. And so, you know, she's, I'm like, do you use Spotify? Do you use Apple music? And she was, she's like, I think I use YouTube. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, go there. I said, add this album to your playlist and come back and tell me what you think. (laughs) Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, I, I kind of held off on, on discussing Keith at length uh, until, until now, because, um, obviously he was a, a dear friend of yours and, um, just so influential and important to so many people. I've been reading mm-hmm. and reading and reading more and more about him in his life. And, and, and for those of you who aren't really familiar, uh, Keith and Paul again, started blue boy, uh, Keith passed away in 2007 from cancer. I mean, far too, far too young, far too early. Uh, just really an icon for those who, who are familiar with this scene, uh, you know, maybe a little bit about how you and Keith first met, uh, maybe a little bit about your relationship. I just wanted to kind of just speak about Keith here and, and really maybe pay anything that I can do in terms of a tribute to him. Mm, sure. Um, well, I first met Keith, uh, I, used, I used to go to church fairly regularly when I was growing up. There was a good, there's a good sort of youth scene at our church. There was, there was bands and things going on and people very creative it was a very creative time and I remember he was in the pew in front front of me and he was 
etching uh, the word Dexys with his thumbnail into the wood. And I said, I said to my brother, I was sitting next to my brother. I said, "Who's that?" He said, "Oh, that's Keith. He wants to he wants to chat to you." So we ch we chatted, and uh, he was wearing I think he was probably wearing an orange juice t shirt or something, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I think the next weekend we arranged that I'd go around his house, we'd play records and talked about the music we liked. And um, he he was very clear up front. He said, I, I want to start a band. And I'd, I'd just been playing guitar for a couple of years. I said, well, I've got some songs. And, um, and from then it was, um, you know, sending cassettes in the post to each other, meeting up at weekends. And uh, gosh, I'm going back now to probably 80, 83, wow. 1984. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was still at school. So, <laughs> so, so then we, we sort of progressed to um, making little, little tapes and songs on tape. And, uh, and then we, we decided we, we'd advertise for a bass player and a drummer. And then Feverfew was was kind of born out of that. And then um, we we played, gosh, we played so many pubs and gigs and things. And uh, we did the the TV thing, the Sky Star Search. That was that was from someone that Keith knew. He knew someone that worked in TV, and they 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 had this Sky was like this new sort of cable channel, and it was like a talent competition. Oh, it's just awful. It's just dreadful. <laughs> And um, and, uh, and so yeah, I, I knew I knew him pretty much for God, the biggest chunk of my life, really. And um, we we you know we'd we'd always done music together, and we were very good friends. He was very funny, um, yeah. And then then kind of Blue Boy happened, and we managed to get to Japan and France uh, touring, and. Uh, and then after that, of course, we we did some other projects. We did Beaumont together. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and but he he uh, he was based in Brighton, and I was based in Reading, so it's not too far away. It's on the south coast of England, and um, we, you know, I I I'd heard the news about him being ill, and uh, it was a great loss. You know, yeah, it was sure. it was very sudden. You know, I. You're, you're somebody that, that, I mean, I would say probably knew him as well as anybody. Uh, maybe if you could just, just spend a minute here and just maybe tell us about the kind of person he was. Okay. Keith was very, he was a very warm person, very quiet. Um, and very, um, very imaginative and very thoughtful. Um, he's, very, he's one of the, I think he's one of the most loyal loyal friends I ever had. Um, I've got postcards from him, letters from him. If ever he went on a holiday, he kind of wrote, wrote to me, he wrote to Phil, who was in the band, who was in Feverfew. He, he's, he's got a, a little stack of postcards that he posted to him. Um, he was, yeah, he's very loyal. Uh -huh. um, we had some great times together. He's very, very funny. He's one of the funniest people I've met. <laughs> And um, it was good because we, although we were sort of different in terms of our tastes and style and things, we did share this kind of vision for, for music and ideas. And 
we were never really, really at odds with anything that we did. It just seemed to work very, very well. I, I never, I never read a song title or some lyrics and thought, oh no, God, that just <laughs> awful. And likewise, luckily, he never said this. The chorus is dreadful. We've got to drop that, or you need to rewrite something. It just seemed to flow very easily, very well. So I think we were just two people that clicked. Yeah, yeah, and and, and probably mutual respect for what one another did. I mean, I don't, I don't know that. And obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, guitar was your your primary vehicle, and and voice was his primary vehicle. So the two complemented yeah. each other. It's not like, you know, you were sitting back saying I could write and sing that better, or or vice no, versa. No, not at yeah. all. Not at all. I mean, occasionally I would I would give him some pointers with melody. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the melodies I wrote, and he would he would sing on those melodies, but he would go, he would he would interpret them and do his own thing, which is exactly what you want someone to do when you work in music. You want people to do their own thing. So it's a a more, it's a much more richer experience. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I can, I can tell when, well, to some degree, when somebody, you know, writes, records an entire, you know, album or song on their own, I think it, there's, there's something, there's a a little bit of magic sometimes missing, sometimes Mm -hmm. not, but um, but once you bring you know all those individuals together, and in in the case of Blue Boy, there was just a lot of organic instrumentation, so everyone brought that that art you know to the project, and uh, you know Keith, I mean his lyrics just they 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 just touch so many people. I I, I didn't realize I have the uh, the the reissue of Unisex here. I didn't realize I actually had it, and it has that lyric sheet. And I was reading it this morning, and I mean just I just incredible. I. I I don't really know what more to say. I mean, just away with, with words and phrasing and just really, yeah. really good. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, there, there, I did mention early on that, that I actually have a, a, a very, very small connection with Keith. Uh, so I played with, uh, my best friends, Mario and Rose and shoestrings and, uh, uh yeah. yeah. So I played, I played drums and guitar and, uh, bass live and things like that. And, uh, yeah. I don't really know the exact story, but uh, I think there was a mutual connection somewhere between the band and and Matthew Jacobson, who ran the Grand Magisteri, the label, and Keith. And I think yeah. they just they wrote to Keith and asked, "Hey, would you write some liner note or something about the album?" And I believe, wow. you know, a, a CDR was sent over to Keith, and he came back again with you know just really really funny yet poignant one or two line uh liner note that's on the back of the cd so it means a yeah. lot to me actually yeah, yeah. you know you, i know i know the name matthew jacobson i never met him did he did he do an lp and uh i think we contributed a song to that called 80s diaries i think was it a cover or no no it was, oh. it was no it was, it was unreleased otherwise and i don't know what happened to it it's somewhere it's out there somewhere he mm-hmm. uh he did his label was was pretty prolific from i want to say i think he started the first late the first release was momus and right. uh, yeah. there was a there was a louis philippe album on there and um uh, there was yeah. uh oh boy all always always uh, yeah from, from uh, l yeah yeah so it was it was mr right which was the the, right. the later project so he yeah. really had that you know that it, it all started and we can i have a previous episode where i spoke actually two episodes where i spoke to matt and, uh, you know, he, the whole label started as he wanted to do an L tribute album. Yeah. And the irony is, is that it never came out. I'll have to ask him what happened to the, the uh, lost, the lost I, blue boy track. <laughs> there's somewhere in, in the ether somewhere. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, so, you know, we, this has been a great conversation. Again, I have Paul Stewart from Blue Boy on here. We've been talking about uh, their 1994 album on Sarah titled Unisex. I mean, I think it's a, it's really a landmark album. I, I've been listening to it again uh, all the way through for the last week or so. And um, it's just, it's one of those albums that's just, I, I think of like the words like epic and, and um, I, we're going to talk a little bit later about somebody else who made a comment about it and just how much it meant to people. Uh, again, uh, Paul has been very, very gracious here to place some excerpts from the album. And uh, we're going to go ahead and give another uh, song a listen. Paul will go ahead and give us uh, a, a, a quick sampling of the track Always There. fantastic thank you it's obviously better with cello <laughs> <laughs> again i what, what what's really opening my eyes to this is just there and, and i you know i've listened to the album hundreds of times but just the intricate playing that's going on when you just isolate that instrument it's really really good yeah i, th I think uh what you said about lyrics looking good just standing up on their own reading them I think uh, maybe the true mark of a song is if if you play it on the most stripped down instrument, and you just play the bare the bare bones of it, you you there's something that's still there. You're not relying completely on studio effects or overdubs for the song to actually deliver. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I I was just I just when you picture that and Keith's lyrics together, I mean, I I kind of think back to like again back to how you and Keith originally met and it's just it's uh, those happenstance moments so if Keith was you know somebody who was just not a lyricist or a lyricist who liked to write I don't know death metal yeah. <laughs> you know it, it it may have never happened but it was just it was the right place the right time and the right two people that came together and and probably his lyrics you know fed off of of your playing and and I'm sure that that your playing influenced, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. And he, he, your playing influences lyrics and vice versa. I'm sure throughout the yeah, years. I think so. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it without knowing that there's, there's this great singer that needs somewhere to, to, for his, for his vocals to fit round. Do you know what I mean? So that is yeah, that is sure. the real, a real uh, important element. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, I, I've got, I've got both copies of my album, of the album here. I didn't, again, I didn't realize I had two of them. 
Uh, and I just, I love the imagery of the album. I, I was looking at it this morning. I was looking at the original pressing as well as the re the reissue is fantastic, by the way. Yeah. Um, they just did a great job on it. Was was the imagery and, and the photos and the, the layout and the design, was that solely from the band or did the label have input on that? No, we um, we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do. Um, again, I, I mentioned before about the purity, the, the instruments and the songs, and I think we wanted the, that to come across um, on, on the LP. So in the same way as kind of like New Order, I think, um, was it Ceremony? That are like a bunch of flowers on the sleeve. Sure. Doesn't necessarily reflect the sound of the music, but um, we liked that kind of contrast. So we, uh, I think Gemma actually took the photos. It was in a church. Uh, they bought some flowers, and uh, they took these shots on a you know a, a, a film camera. The front and the back hold out of shots. And uh, we we sent those off to get developed, and um, and we we sketched out how we want it to look, and the back as well, across the back, and uh, sent it off to to Matt and Claire, and they they got it organised, got it designed. Yeah, I could. I mean, I, it it really fits. I mean, it. So again, back to Matthew Jacobson. He, you know, he's a graphic designer by trade, and we so we spoke a lot about, you know, how the the look of the album has to support the music underneath it. And yeah. this obviously no no doubt does. And mm. in addition to doing that, it also fits the aesthetic of the label. So, you know, when you look at, you know, Sarah releases before and after it, it doesn't it doesn't look out of place. It looks perfectly mm. placed. And yeah. um, that's not that's not always easy to do. No, no, no. for sure. Uh, you know, I, I I've obviously, as you know, have been from listening to me speak and babble on here. I've just been a huge fan of, of the entire uh, Blue Boy release catalog, and I mean Sarah and otherwise, and the production is always stellar, and and it's always really really supportive of the music. I mean, as you know, when you're working with organic instruments and cellos and and violas and and just different things, uh, getting that sound right is is difficult and but yet super important. Mm. Uh, you know, I noticed that that you guys worked with uh, Richard Haynes in terms of engineering this album. Uh, how did, how did like the production and the engineering kind of play into the final product? Okay. We wanted to capture, um, quite a live sound. We didn't want it to sound too produced. Um, and we also wanted to find somewhere that had had experience with, with those, these kind of live instruments, like classical instruments, because you know, as you probably know, they're very, very different to record than an electric guitar through an amplifier. For sure. So we needed that bit of a bit of a mix. Um, and Richard's place, he 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 came sort of recommended to us the first LP we did down in Western Supermare um, at this studio we'd been to before called the White House. Um, Martin um, was a, a a great producer but we we wanted we wanted a more beefy live sort of sound and also due to kind of where we were around the country this place just seemed really good just to get out get out and about it was way out in the sticks in oxford it was a converted barn on a farm <laughs> so it was this very kind of like hide yourselves away and work mm -hmm. hard with no distractions um which is perfect it's surrounded by countryside 
And I can vividly remember listening to, you know, the playbacks of some of the tracks and looking out the window and seeing sheep. And it's just, it's, it's just such a great, <laughs> just such a great image. And, um, and we, we stayed there. They had like a accommodation there. So we, we, we literally were there for five, six days at a time working wow. hard, um, living, eating, breathing the album. And, and when you, when you guys went to the, went to the studio, how, how, developed were the songs so i guess my question really is how are the were the songs vastly different or fairly i'm glad you raised this glad you because this is an interesting point you see my personal way of working is that you go to a studio with about 80 percent knowing exactly what you want Mm -hmm. you need to allow for that extra dynamic to happen or not happen so that things can evolve in the studio in their own way because you you need that allowance for something to sort of happen um so some sometimes you sometimes you can go in there and you know exactly how the song's going to sound and all the instruments everyone knows their parts and you record it and then you play it back and you just think it's empty it's, it's not happening mm-hmm. we need an extra layer or something so you need to have that in the back of your mind that you need extra things to and that's where things like percussion might come in or backing vocals or so you need everyone there with all their ideas and with their talent just to sort of throw all this these kind of ideas and throw them all around um so yeah that's 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 how we went we went in and we knew pretty much you know you need to be rehearsed you don't want to waste money trying right. to remember your words that's 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 not the way but um yeah it's it, it, once once you've got the the sort of nuts and bolts of it down, I start adding a few things. It start you see it start to come together, and sometimes it leads. It takes you in a different direction, and you have to kind of go with it. You have to go where that. It's a bit of a cliche, but you know, you go where the art is taking you. Sure, kind of thing. Uh, that totally makes sense. I, you know, and, and I, I I completely agree with having having done some studio work uh, with the eighty percent number. I think you know if you go in with something less than that uh you know you're, you're wasting money time i think frustration there's just a lot that because the there's just a lot of pressure when you know when someone's paying for that time and yeah, you've got so. someone sitting there's just a lot there and then on the flip side of it um you know going in with with just no ability to to negotiate or come off of the original sound i think um it doesn't do a service to the recording either because as you know, when you get in the studio, you just have all these other tools and the studio can become yeah. an instrument yeah. in, in itself. Yeah, you so, need to, yeah. and you need to be flexible and you need to listen to other people as well. It, sometimes you can, you're, you're saying, ah, oh, that sounds great. And the other five members of the band are saying, it sounds awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know that you, feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you need to be a bit open as well. Yeah. So you know, kind of staying on this theme, uh, I, I I tend to ask this of of just about every every artist that I speak to. Um, Blue Boys played a ton of live gigs, and and you know, there's there's some bands that play very little and very few, and are more studio based, and then there's others that are more, uh, you know, live is where they where their home is. Uh, how did the band feel about playing live versus recording? We we, we loved both. And both things are two, they're two very different creative processes. It's um, playing live is, is like the ultimate in 
you know, communicating this song that you've you've come up with, you know, and and playing it in front of people. I mean, it's you get an instant reaction. Mm-hmm. You also get to feel how the song lives and breathes. Um, so it's quite an exhilarating experience. Whereas in the studio, it's more of a craft and it's more controlled, and the creative process is 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 very. Um, you know, it's much it's much slower, but um, you have much more control over that, and you can see how things are, are sort of moving, and you can change them. Um, also, playing live, you've got you've got the the other elements of you know the, the the noise and everything else, and feedback and everything else to consider. So there's all these, all these other kind of challenges, which can be great fun. But um, it's it's yeah, they're, they're two very different creative processes, I think. But they they're both they're both necessary for sort of the growth of the band and the sort of evolution of your of your sort of song base and your repertoire. I think. It, so did you know with with some artists as you know as they as their catalog ages they you know they tend to take maybe some of their more well known songs and maybe they mature and they they rework them and some of the arrangements change mm. a bit. Was was Blue Boy like that or or was the approach more to stick closer to the you know the sound of the album live we no i think i think the songs exist in two forms i think there's there's the recorded form there's the live form um i mean we didn't want to change things too much live but there are there are practicalities behind you know sure you got six different guitar parts and three cello parts you 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 clearly can't can't re- replicate all of that, so that's what I was saying earlier about about being wary of the luxury of a studio and thinking, well, we've got to take this out live and play it. We <laughs> we don't want to con people and fool people. So I think that's where if the song stands up on its own as a song, it doesn't matter if it's just vocal and guitar. And if the recorded version is this epic song. If the song is still there in its in its kind of basic structure, I think it you know it survives, and, yeah. uh, and, and that's where you can't go wrong. Yeah, and I mean it, you're right because if if it's if it if the cornerstone of the track is there, no matter what is layered on top of it live or in the studio or you know two years or three years out later, it's still the song. And yeah. and I, sure. I, I would totally agree with that. And I you know I always respect artists that that don't don't go out there and, and make the live experience sound like mm. the album. I, you know, yeah. there, there's a certain element of that where I think, you know, you, I don't know the audience, I guess the fan would expect it to stay in its own lane, but yet, you know, it's okay that if it, if it veers left to right a bit, I think yeah. the average fan appreciates that. At least I do. I don't know. I like that. And and for us, that's purely because, as I said to you at the beginning, we we'd sat sit down on a bed with a tape recorder and just a guitar and a voice, and so that that's how the song gestated. That's how it got formed. And so we we never wrote music in the studio with fancy effects. Mm-hmm. So the the basic element, the cornerstone of the song, was always there. And so for anybody listening here, you know, we've been talking about the album Unisex by Blue Boy, but I was just thinking about that comment you just made. And I think if you go back to If Wishes Were Horses and, you know, the, the first mini LP, I think it's what they call it, a mini LP. Yeah. Um, you know, you, I think you hear a, a much, uh, and I, you probably agree, I mean, a much sparser sound, a lot more 
of the just the original elements that are all there uh, versus unisex, which, you know, you had mentioned working with, you know, different engineers and and, and such to make Mm. a little bit of a bigger sound for this album. And so, you know, if anybody is listening to this and says, I really want to hear Blue Boy or I'm not familiar with their full catalog, I would recommend going back to that uh, mini LP as well, because I think you do hear the 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 origins closer Mm. to probably the songwriting uh, than anywhere else. Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely, I hope people would see a growth between the two as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so again, I've got Paul Stewart here from uh, Blue Boy. We're discussing uh, Blue Boy's 1994 album Unisex that came out on Sarah. Uh, he again has been very gracious to, to speak to me today and and even more gracious to, to play some excerpts from some of the, the tracks on the album. Uh, this we, we spoke about this song earlier. This is uh, the opener, as well as I believe the closer uh, in a reprise form of the album, uh, Paul's going to play a, a excerpt from the track So Catch Him. frankly that was just fantastic <laughs> uh yeah and anybody who's familiar with uh the album you know they they would know that track and uh that i th- if i that sounds more like the the reprise or reprise at the end um but definitely has elements of both and that was just fantastic oh thank you very much Whew. um you know and i and you know, we're, we're, we're kind of coming up to the end of the discussion and, you know, Paul's been super gracious and, and kind in, in speaking to uh, an album that, that frankly came out, let me do the math here, 20, is it 27, 27 years ago, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yes, so yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I made a note here that I just have to say that uh, this music still needs to be heard. And that, that that's kind of why I um why I shared it with my, my 19-year-old uh my my 18 year old daughter's friend who's 19 uh to say that you know you just you have to hear this music i i just and 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 unless someone tells you about it at that age i mean i don't i don't know that they're out looking for it the the general 19 year old and i just that that track for me uh really summarizes uh that sound which really kind of leads me to my next question for you um you know, and I guess sticking with unisex in this in this case, 
was there one song or one track on the album that uh, would really that you felt or the band felt would would sum up the sound of Blue Boy and sound and sum up what the band was trying to do? I guess uh, for for the lyrics and the melody and also the, the the music, I think we all you you hear a bit of everything, sure. um, and even the title. I think would probably have to be the joy of living. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No it's doubt. it's even got a sort of end section with a kind of quirky Keith bit at the end, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> which um, which which uh, yeah, I I thought he sang, I think thought he sang brilliantly on that, and, and with Gemma as well, the vocals are really great. There's this kind of boy girl answer response type thing that they they did, sort of without even thinking, and uh, I think. Now I can look back kind of retrospectively and, and say, yeah, I think that was probably where we achieved sort of three minutes of the, all the, the, the ideas, the energy and the, the, the personality of the band and all the people I think comes out in that song. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I, I you know, I, I originally didn't have that on list of tracks to play here, but uh, I am going to add it. I think it, it needs to be added. That was really I guess my oversight because I'm looking at the back of the album now and I see that and I just kind of kick myself for not including it. So for those of you who are still with us, that is something that, that I'll play at the end for sure, because I would, I would totally agree with what, you know, Paul's assessment of, um, of, you know, all the different parts of the song, whether it be the lyrics or the, or the instrumentation that that does sum up this album and really what they were trying to do at the time. Um, you know, looking back on, on that time and, and the, the, the making of the album, uh, is there anything that you would have maybe done differently or you would have changed? Gosh, question. Um, I think it's, no, I think, I think at the time, yeah, I probably would have come up with a dozen things that I wasn't happy with, but over time, I think things have just, the corners have got, have kind of got rubbed down and, it's, it, it belongs where it belongs and it is what it is. And I think, you you know, we could have spent another week maybe improving it or we could have changed one song and done a different one, but it it is where it is. And yeah. I think it just stays there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, I, I, ask, I ask this question just about every time. And, you know, most of the time I get, you know, a similar answer that, you know, we, we love it the way it is and that. And sometimes, you know, I, I do hear whether it's the music or even some of the relationship side that people say, yeah, you know, I wish we would have, uh, you know, maybe used so-and-so or, um, you know, sometimes with the music, music, I mean, the bass was too low or whatever, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to critique that, that, especially this many years on, um, because mm-hmm. to your point, I think it's, you perfectly said it. I mean, the edges have rounded off some of those feelings, those, those notes that you're like, Ooh, the, yeah. that, you, you've, you've come to, to, to accept them as part of what they are. And yeah, I totally, yeah. I totally yeah. I mean, there, there are, there are some little glitches and, and, uh, noises that shouldn't have happened, but they're actually, I, I look out for them now and they're kind of, they're kind of reassuring in a way because I know where they are. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I, I, I don't notice any, but I'm sure you notice the few <laughs> that are on there <laughs> to me. They're just the songs I love, you know, <laughs> you um, the show. No. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, I really just have, you know, one more question for you. And um, this actually came from uh, the question didn't, but 
the the inspiration for it did. So, uh, you know, I, I had spoken to uh, Glenn Donaldson of the Reds, Pinks, and Purples, who I am just a huge fan of. Uh, I think what he's doing is just fantastic. And uh, a couple of days ago, I posted a picture of unisex on my Instagram feed, and he just put one word on there, and it was visionary. And, oh, really? Yeah, and I and I was and I was thinking about that, and and I was like, you know, this is somebody who, again, twenty seven years later, uh, a very much, I mean, in my mind, an accomplished musician and artist in his own right, and for him to say that unisex was visionary publicly like that, I thought was a was was a real testament to the album. So, really, yeah. my final question is: when you guys were were recording and writing and producing this album, did you feel that it was that special to be labeled 27 years later as visionary gosh we had no idea i mean it's 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 surprising how how it's kind of stood the test of time and a lot of music from that era has and there's a lot of interest from you know much much younger people that weren't born then i don't want to say this but yeah that's true and sort of liking stuff on sarah and some of the other bands and um i think I think I'm going to go further and say it's it's probably testament to their vision and their their idea of a label and what a label should be. And uh, you know, you listen to you know some of the bands that didn't record that that much on there. I, I think some you know bands like the Harvest Ministers and they're just that absolutely fabulous. And you listen to them now, they're all, they're really timeless. It's like a you know it's like a prefab sprout record or a, you know and. Um, we we felt all i can say is i know that we felt very privileged to be on this label and as i say given this freedom to do the thing we wanted to do we were just a bunch of people that knew each other recording music writing songs and playing gigs and uh never expected it to last more than you know the next year so you know everything was a bit of a surprise um and so when the label finished and when it ended I do remember feeling a little bit kind of lost really because it was the first label we were on, the first proper label, and Matt and Claire really did hold our hands through the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like leaving your, I don't know, leaving home kind of thing, you know? <laughs> oh, what do sure. I do now? What do I do now? Yeah. So we, we were really in that spot. And so so we just thought things would just disappear. But, and then, you know, then the first reissue comes out and then a CD comes out and then another reissue and then there's a, a fan page and then there's a Spotify and then there's a, and so all of this, all these things that have happened in the last, you know, 15, 20 years since we did it, uh, it's been a complete surprise. Really. We now have, we had no idea at the time. Yeah. I mean, it really is a testament to the album and, and to, to your work and, and the band's work. I mean, the fact that, that it came out in 1994 and it's 2022 and, and I still, to your point you said earlier i still feel like it it stands the test of time and i think truly it will 20 years from now as well just because of the the writing and the instrumentation the arrangement it's it is timeless it's just it's good solid music and uh that was a testament to to the band and yourself and 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 ultimately you know keith as well and okay. um, for sure. So Paul, again, uh, you know, thank you for joining me today. This has been just a, a dream come true for me. I've just been a huge fan and a follower for, oh boy, more than 27 years at this point. And um, it's been great speaking to you today. 
It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're going to go ahead and, and, and close off this this portion of, of my discussion with Paul Stewart of Blue Boy. Uh, he's going to play uh, one more excerpt for us from the album we've been speaking about, which is 1994's Unisex by Blue Boy on Sarah Records. And uh, this is Marble Arch. Thank you again Paul for joining me this has just been so special and um, I really appreciate you taking the time to take a little bit of a walk down memory lane uh, about this album it just means so much to me and so much to uh, many others so again thank you so much you're welcome thanks very much Brian I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paul Stewart of Blue Boy today where we discussed their 1994 album unisex uh, I think Paul was gracious and kind. He was It was actually his idea to play a couple uh, excerpts from the album, which immediately, of course, I jumped on. Um, it was especially touching for me, frankly, to hear about he and Keith's relationship and really that symbiotic relationship that they had in terms of music and, and word and lyric. And again, I think I may have said it or, or, or Paul may have said it, but, you know, there's a chance that that day that they met in that church that maybe Paul was into, you know, death metal and Keith was into soft rock and, and the two just didn't connect. And, you know, I always think about things like that. And, and if something like that were not to have happened, we would have never had blue boy. We would have never had unisex. So, um, things happen for a reason, I suppose, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you listened to the episode. I hopefully you enjoyed it. I've got some great episodes coming out here over the next couple months. Um, some really, really good ones, but I wanted to once again, thank Paul for joining me, uh, for spending the time to talk about the album, talk about the band and, uh, and really just share. I mean, it was, it was really a great conversation. So thanks again, Paul. Uh, for those of you who would like to hear previous episodes of this podcast, you can find those on basically every major streaming platform at this point, every, every podcast streaming platform, I should say. Um, you can leave a comment through, uh, Apple podcasts for me. Uh, you can reach me via my email, which is vinyldetroit.podcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and uh, maybe even TikTok. I don't know. I can't seem to figure it out. But anyway, thanks for joining me today. And uh, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode with a song that, that Paul and I spoke about quite a bit that he felt really embodied this album. And, and that track, which I, for some reason I, I didn't really speak about and I wasn't planning on playing, but... Once he brought it up, it really clicked for me that that's this type of track. So we're going to go ahead and close out this episode of the Violent Detroit podcast with another track, which Paul, again, said that probably is the track that best represented that album. And that song is going to be called The Joy of Living. And once again, thanks for joining me and have a good day. Take care.
bright sun twice at morning time.